amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Help me with this part. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. Such a powerful song, such a, a beautiful song. The, the last, the final line of that opening stanza is so powerful because it's really taken from God's word. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's practically taken out of the mouth of the, of the father and the prodigal son who says, this son of mine was lost, but now he's found. Jesus told a parable to illustrate what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to live in the realm of his glorious grace. And then that second and final clause of the final stanza uh, was blind, but now I see. That came from the mouth of someone, not in a parable, not in a story that Jesus told to illustrate his point, but a real flesh and blood human being who was born blind and who made that declaration, I was blind, but now I see. The, this powerful metaphor of spiritual sight being granted to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. That beautiful, powerful metaphor. There is a miracle behind the metaphor. And that's what we're going to be studying today in John chapter 9. we got 41 verses uh, ahead of us. We've got our work cut out for us here today. So let's jump into verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes in the mud and said to them, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The story begins with the blind man's physical transformation. It begins with the blind man's physical transformation. So it began that says that he passed by. That Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth as he passed by. He was on his way out of the temple. He had just escaped being stoned to death because Jesus had just said before Abraham was, I am. And, and there was no other way to interpret what Jesus was saying other than him declaring that he was God in the flesh. And so the Pharisees then went and tried to find stones to throw at his skull and at his abdomen to cause death and then to bury him right then and there, to execute him for committing, for, for, for claiming to be God, for committing blasphemy. But Jesus was hidden from their sight. He escaped from their midst. And as he was passing by, they see a man who was born blind. And his disciples asked him, who sinned? Was it, was it the man who sinned or was it his parents? In the disciples' mind, there was only two options. You see, they drew a, genect, a, a, a direct connection between a, a, a person's sin and, and, and a person's suffering. A person's circumstances have to be a result or a consequence of a decision that they've made or a decision that one of their, their ancestors had made 
ahead of them. This is a very popular widespread understanding of how our world works and how suffering works and how sin works. It's a, it's a drastic and deadly oversimplification of what sin, suffering, and sickness are and how they intersect and interact with one another. Now it is true, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that after sin entered the world, the earth has been cursed. Thorns grow. And the ground is difficult to farm. And, and, and people get sick and people die and people suffer. This is all as a result of sin. So speaking in general terms, in general, sin is the cause of all sickness and suffering. In general terms. But when we start to get into specific terms, when we start to say that this specific suffering or sickness has been caused, draw a direct line because of this specific sin, that's where we really get into trouble. That's what Job's friends did, right? Like 37 chapters just trying to convince Job that the reason why you're suffering the way you are is because of your sin. The whole message of the book of Job, if you make it to the end, God shows up. And the whole lesson of the book of Job is that we cannot draw a conclusion that when we see someone who is sick or someone who is suffering, that that must be as a result of previous sin. Hinduism, karma, reincarnation, it's all based upon that correlation that, that every specific sin leads to specific suffering and sickness. But that's not the way the world works. In general terms, all sin is the cause of all sickness and suffering. But we get ourselves into some serious trouble when we draw a, connect, a, a direct line connecting the two. Now on a personal level, on an introspective level, if we find ourselves suffering, if we find ourselves sick, it is a time for us. To say, Lord, are you using this sickness, this suffering, to discipline me? Are you using it to reprove me? Are you using it to open my eyes to see that I have sin? Jesus told the man that he healed in John chapter 5, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. The church at Corinth was warned that because they were not properly honoring the Lord in when they were taking the bread and the cup, that some were getting sick and some were dying. There is a time in which we need to personally ourselves ask the Lord. The problem is, is that if we on the outside look at someone else's circumstances and someone else's sickness and someone else's suffering, and then try to say like Job's friends did, you must have done something, that's when we cross the line. And Jesus' disciples needed to be taught here. And so Jesus tells them in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is good news for all of us, especially those who are unwell and are longing to be healed. Those of us who are going through a prolonged season of suffering and looking for God to do something, longing for him to see a miracle. Jesus is going to perform a miracle here. In this particular man's life, Jesus is going to display the works of God. And Jesus makes it clear that this man's suffering all throughout his entire life, born blind, and everything that he went through, it all had a purpose. 
It was not meaningless. It was not gratuitous. It was not pointless. There is a meaning, Jesus says. And the purpose was to display the works of God. And sometimes I believe God can still perform miracles. And sometimes God chooses to manifest his power in an unquestionable miracle like he's about to do here. But that's not the only way that God works. The Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 how a number of times he had this thorn in his, in his side, this thorn in his flesh, some sort of physical ailment or sickness. And he pleaded with the Lord multiple times, take this from me. And what did the Lord say? He said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, there's always a purpose in our, in our sickness. There's always a purpose in our suffering. There's always a purpose in whatever circumstances we may be going through. And the purpose is always for God to display his power. Sometimes he displays his power by performing a miracle. Sometimes he displays his power by giving his children endurance in the midst of suffering for his glory. Where his power, same power to perform miracles, his power is made perfect in weakness. God uh, is, is with us in our suffering, display his, displaying his glory. In vor- verse 4, he says, We must display the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, we got a lot of work to do. It's amazing. You know, he, he includes his disciples in the process. Like, we're doing this. All they did was watch Jesus spit in the ground. They just got out of the way. But Jesus includes us in what he is doing. He says, we only got a few hours of daylight left. The clock is ticking. This is the Feast of Booths. Six months from now, it's going to be Passover. Jesus knows he's going to be on the cross. And he's got some work that he wants to do. And he's saying, night is coming. Now, after night comes another day. The cross is going to be a dark night for sure. Darkness came over the whole land. But Christ rose again, amen? And, and then on the day of Pentecost, he sent the Spirit. Amen? Amen. And so we can continue. It's not that the work is over after the cross. No, the work is really just beginning. But Jesus is saying, I'm on a timeline here. Last night I was trying to get some yard work done and made a last-minute trip, you know, toward the end of the afternoon to Canadian Tire with a couple of my boys and got some soil and needed to get some seed on the ground. And, and it's starting to cloud over and it's getting dark and I'm like... I'm shoveling stuff around, I'm running around with the spreader like this. Why? Because I'm running out of daylight. I had work that I needed to do, but I was running out of time. And so Jesus is communicating to these, to these disciples, listen, listen, we're running out of time here. We've got some work that needs to be done. He says, I'm the light of the world. And he'll say to us, doesn't he, in Matthew 5, he says, we are the light of the world. That we carry on the work that he started after the night of the cross and then the new day of the resurrection and the giving of the spirit. Verse 6, he, he spits on the ground. I mean, we got a home full of four boys, age uh, 10, 8, 6, and 3. I mean, this is like the Duncan family favorite verse right here, okay? Uh, he spat on the ground and then he touched the spit and rubbed it in the mud. Just keeps getting better and better. And then he put it in somebody's face. I mean, what on earth? This is awesome. But what is really going on here? Well, think back. Think back. Remember, in the prologue, it said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that by Him all things were created. Without Him nothing on earth was created. 
Everything that was made was made through him. And how did he make man? Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. You see, Jesus is not just the healer. He's the creator. And he went back to the original raw materials. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It was Jesus who formed Adam. He was there when Adam was formed from the dust. And now as an act of recreation, Jesus rubs mud on this man's eyes so as to heal him. And then he sent him to the pool of uh, Siloam. Uh, here's a picture of uh, what the pool of Siloam would have looked like at the, uh, at the time. Or sorry, more, uh, more recently it was excavated in 1880. And, and so he sent him here. Now this is, this is about a kilometer away from the temple where Jesus would have first encountered this individual as he was passing by. So I Google mapped it. So if you were to leave the temple mount... And make it down to the pool of Siloam. These are real places. This is a real story. This really happened. So we're talking about 950 meters. It would have taken someone who was able-bodied uh, to, to move down there in about 12 minutes. Now why did Jesus have him go to the pool of Siloam? Siloam means sent. John's always translating things for his readers. Now Jesus had just said in John 4 that Jesus was sent. And he sends this guy to the pool called Sent. Now why did he have him walk almost a kilometer with mud on his face? There's plenty of water all around the temple. Why did he send him there? Imagine if God asked you to walk down, you know, down 10th line onto Argentia over to Walmart with your eyes closed and mud on your face. Groping your way through asking people for help, everyone watching you. Why did he send him on this journey? Why not just heal him on the spot? Well, I believe that Jesus was not really concern, only concerned that this man would be able to see, but he wanted as many people as possible to see that this man could see. It wasn't just about the man seeing it was about everybody seeing that the man could see. And this is why. Because there were very specific prophecies and predictions that were made about the Messiah. Certain things were going to happen. And Jesus wanted to advertise that this event was taking place and that he was in fact responsible. Look at these examples from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, the father speaking to the son, to the Messiah, you will be a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. You see, there's no more my hour has not come anymore. Jesus laid it all out there in John chapter 8 when he said, I am that I am. When he declared that he was God. They've already tried to arrest him once. They've, now they've tried to kill him on the spot. Jesus knows that the clock is ticking. It's going to be nighttime soon. 
And so he wants the world to know that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited one. There are all kinds of other miracles that Jesus performed that Old, Old Testament prophets performed. I mean, he fed all those people. People made a direct connection to Moses. Elijah, Elisha, we see dead people being raised. We see all kinds of other healings, that sort of thing. And yet, no one in the Old Testament, no one in history, as we're going to find, has ever taken someone who was born blind and made them see. This was something that was specific for the Messiah to do. And Jesus wanted everyone to know about it. And it worked. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Is he? Others said, No, he's like him. It's his doppelganger. He, he, kept, he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I happened to be blind at the time. <laughs> Verse 13, they, they brought to the Pharisees. Now we know this is going to be fun. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been, the man who had formerly been blind. See, I stumble over my words. John didn't even really know how to describe it. What, what, what technical term do you use for someone who was once blind and now they see? He's called the man who had formerly been blind. We will call him the MWHFBB for short. He's brought before the Pharisees. Uh, jot this down secondly. The Pharisees now bring about a religious interrogation. The Pharisees' religious interrogation. Verse 14 gives an important detail that hadn't been mentioned earlier, but it says, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Happened to be on a Sabbath. And you're thinking, oh no, you're not, you're not telling me that spitting on the ground and mixing it up with your fingers, that counts as work? It counts as work work. This is how ridiculous the Sabbath, not the biblical rules of the Sabbath, but the pharisaical additional rules of the Sabbath were at the time. I'm going to put, you don't, you don't have time to read all of this, but there were 39 activities that were forbidden that you could not do on the Sabbath. Number 11 on the list there in, in bold is kneading. Like with a K, like kneading dough. You're not allowed to knead dough on the Sabbath. No, no one's allowed to make pizza. No one's allowed to make mud either, even if it's a tiny little bit that you're making from a saliva. So that's the issue that they have. Verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's their issue, because he made the mud. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So how are they going to solve the division? Verse 17, they, they said again to the blind man, he's not a blind man anymore. What do you say about him? 
since he has opened your eyes. He said he's a prophet. So they're at a loss. They don't know what to do. They ask the MWH FBB. They ask him his opinion. He says he's a prophet. Verse 18, but the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They thought that this was some sort of trick. He's got a twin brother, a long-lost cousin. They look alike. They're just trying to attract attention. This is some sort of scam. Until, verse 18, they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. You see, the, the Pharisees were already so concerned about Jesus and his influence that they used the only recourse that they had left. They couldn't use the truth because Jesus had the truth. And every time they tried to confront Jesus, they, they, they knew there was no way around it. Jesus was right. There was, there was no way to, to confront him, to combat him, to challenge him. So they didn't have the truth. And so what did they rely on? The same thing people rely on today. They relied on public shaming and social ostracization. Our world is no different. We're all perpetually living in grade six. That if we don't agree with someone or get along with someone, then we get the other people to, to stay away from them or we make up stories about them or we get them out of the in crowd. Same for the Pharisees, same with the intellectual and cultural elites in our day. What, you don't believe what we believe? We, you're out of the club. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna eat your food anymore. We're not gonna do business in your state anymore. We're not gonna let you get into our schools anymore. Social ostracization and public shaming. When you don't have the truth, this is all that's left. And did, did, you, did you hear that sound when I read verse 23? Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Did you hear it? I'll say it one more time. He is of age, ask him, thump, thump. Did you hear it? He is of age, ask him, thump, thump. What, what is that sound? What is that, what's that thump, thump? That's the sound of his parents throwing him under the bus. son who they had no doubt prayed for, who they probably walked themselves, they, they walked him over to the temple that day to go and beg. A son, they had finally seen him healed, they had finally seen, they, but their eyes were not open to the truth. Their eyes were so fixated on the fear of what it would mean to be social outcasts, kicked out of the synagogue, that they threw their son under the bus. Verse 24, for the second time they called the man who had, been who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. The Pharisees now are using spiritual manipulation. 
powerful tool in the hands of someone, especially if they're in some sort of position of leadership, whether it be a pastor or whether it be a husband or whether it be a small, whatever it may be. To try to play the spiritual chump card, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That's what they say about Jesus Christ. Because he made mud with his spit in order to heal a man. And I love how the man answered, verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. There it is. Some of us think that, you know, we want to be a witness at work or at school. We want to tell our neighbors about Jesus. But you think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know enough about the Bible. What if someone asks me a question I don't know the answer to? Well, just say what this guy says. Listen, there's, there's not a whole lot that I know. I'll ask someone about that hard question you just asked me. But here's the one thing I do know. I was once blind, but now I see. We talked earlier when we were in John chapter 5 about how there is a place for expert witnesses in all in trials, right? You call in an expert witness and they know all of the details of the forensics, however it may be, and they're essential in, in, in a courtroom situation. And in, in biblical witnessing and sharing our faith, there is a place for expert witnesses, people who know apologetics and people who know the Bible inside and out and people who know all about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And we have lots of expert witnesses in our church and we thank God for them. But there is nothing like an eyewitness. There is nothing like someone who was there, who experienced it themselves. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you, you are an eyewitness. You were once blind, but now you see an eyewitness in the spiritual sense. An eyewitness of your own life and how you have been transformed. That's all we need. Just tell them what we know. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus changed my life. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you would not listen. He's like, what's the point of me explaining it again? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> I love this guy. And they reviled him. They insulted him. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. <laughs> you guys are in some serious trouble here. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's speaking in the negative. If he was not from God, he could do nothing. But he has done something. And it's not just a small thing that he's done. He's opened the eyes of a blind man. So he, he lays it out for them. He, he must have come from God. Look at how they turn the tables. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. They believed the same thing the disciples believed. Because of your circumstances or your situation, we shouldn't listen to you. Because there must be a direct relation between your sickness or your suffering and some sin that you or your parents committed. You were born in utter sin. And then they say, and would you teach us? 
And by the way, who are you to tell us what you think? Well, they asked him what he thought. Go back to verse 14, or verse 17. They said to him, what do you say about him? And now they're, now they're getting mad at him for telling him. And then look at this. At the end of verse 34, and they cast him out. They cast him out. Social ostracization, public shaming. You don't fit in with the way we're doing things. You don't fit in with our understanding, our worldview. So you're out. His parents went to synagogue that weekend. His parents still got invited to dinner parties and barbecues and all of that. But the son was, was cast out. All in favor of having Jesus back in the story? Did you miss him? This is, it's, a, it's, a funny, it's a funny chapter because for 75% of the time, Jesus isn't even in the room. There's hardly anything, any parallel like this in, in anywhere else in the Gospels. Jesus, he's not even there, like for 75% of the time. So then he comes back, and what does he come back? He comes seeking out the one who was cast out. Isn't that just like Jesus? Verse 35, Jesus heard that, he, that they had cast him out, and having, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? There was a movie that was uh, released uh, in Europe last year, and it was released in the States this year called Mary Magdalene. Uh, it's not a biblically faithful movie. I haven't seen it, but I was just really intrigued because uh, Joaquin Phoenix played Jesus. And there was a bit of a, an issue on the set because it came to the scene where Jesus was supposed to uh, make mud with his saliva and put it on. Uh, in the movie, the script writer changed it from a man to a woman, maybe because it was about Mary Magdalene. I don't know. I didn't see the movie. But, but then Joaquin Phoenix got to the point where he was supposed to perform that scene, and he didn't do it. In sort of classic Joaquin Phoenix dramatic fashion, he... he he demanded that the script be changed. And this is what he said. I got rid of the swear words. That wasn't a joke. Anyway, he says, I, I knew about that scene from the Bible, but I guess I had never really considered it. When I got there, I thought, I'm not going to rub dirt in her eyes. It doesn't make any sense. That is a horrible introduction to seeing. And he says this, that moment is not so much about a real miracle. It's about someone who has been dismissed by society finally being seen, embraced, and encouraged to join the broader community. To me, that is a miracle. There's something profoundly beautiful about that sentiment. Now that sounds all fine and good. The, the real miracle is not that there actually was a miracle. Well, what? I mean, if there could be a miracle in the Bible that could truly be attested. I mean, there was an investigation that went into this miracle. It was biased in the other direction. The people who were doing the investigation wanted it not to be true. And they couldn't disprove it. So the miracle actually did happen. But look at... Look at what Joaquin Phoenix says here, he says, 
It's about someone who's been dismissed by society finally being seen, embraced, and encouraged to join the broader community. Is that what actually happened? No, the opposite happened. This man had his eyes open, both physically and spiritually, and was cast out as a result. It was only Jesus who went after the outcast and asked him the most important question that anyone could ever be asked. He asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And before we get to that a question, let me share with you the third and final point. To sum up all of this, we've got the this perspective of the blind man and then the Pharisees, and then Jesus gives us the Savior's spiritual interpretation. He is now going to interpret meaning, not Joaquin Phoenix's meaning into what this story means. Jesus is going to tell us why this happened and what it means. He's going to give the interpretation. It all centers around believing. Go back to verse 18. It says the Jews did not believe. Remember the word believe is the most important word in the gospel of John. It occurs 98 times. You're tired of me here saying that. It's because the word comes up a lot. Over and over and over again. Believe, believe, believe. And he asked this man, do you believe in the son of man? Now we've talked about this earlier, but it's worth reviewing. When Jesus says son of man, he's not talking about his humanity. Like I'm just one of you. No, he's, he's using a technical term to describe himself. He's, he's referring to an Old Testament passage, Daniel chapter 7. Look at it here on the screen. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man is not just a man. He comes on the clouds of heaven. He comes from heaven. And he has been given this glorious kingdom that will never fade. He's an eternal being. And his reign will go on forever and ever. So when Jesus says son of man, he's saying, do you believe that I'm just a normal everyday guy just like you? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do you believe that I am the fulfillment of Daniel 7? That I'm the one who's to rule and to reign? Verse 36, he says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. You have seen him with your new eyes that I gave you. You have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I believe and he worshipped him. Now people who sort of approach scripture from the Joaquin Phoenix um, school of theology would, would say that, you know, Jesus just thought he was an everyday guy. And the miracles aren't so much about him actually doing supernatural things. It's just us sort of making up our own stories and, and, and meanings and interpretations. Now, if Jesus was just an everyday normal guy like us, would it be appropriate for him to allow another human being to worship him? No, it would not. So if Jesus were just a good moral teacher, now would be the time for him to be like, hold up, bud, get up off your knees, get, get up, up, up. I'm just a normal person. That's not what he says. I'm just, a, I'm just a moral teacher. That's not what he says. He receives worship from another human being because Jesus is not merely a human being. He is a human being, but he's God in flesh. 
and he is worthy, as we sang today, worthy of every song that we could ever sing, every praise that we could ever give. He alone is worthy. Then listen to what Jesus says in verse 39. He says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. The Pharisees thought they were the judge. They were bringing in the witnesses and trying to come to a conclusion and they, they made it clear. They thought that Jesus was a sinner in verse 24. And then they told the man that, who had formerly been blind in verse 34 that he was born in utter sin. They were acting as judge. Meanwhile, the judge wasn't even in the room. Jesus says, for judgment I've come into the world. The, the word judgment means division. That, that Jesus is continually dividing people into two groups. People who believe, people who don't believe. People who thirst, people who don't thirst. People who, who have hunger, people who don't have hunger. People who have life, people who have death. People who have light, people who have darkness. And Jesus now, is, he's making another division. And he's saying there's people who are blind and admit it. And there are people who are blind and they don't admit it. And Jesus says, I can't work with someone who's blind but is convinced that they can see. And they're just making it up. You know, you picture the man the whole time, right? He, get, he washes his face in the, the, the pool of Siloam. He's never seen before. Maybe his hands are the first time he sees. Maybe the water stills and he sees his face for the first time. He looks up and he sees the sun and the clouds. He sees the, the building and the architecture. You sort of picture him on trial with the, with the, other, with the Pharisees and he's kind of like... Right? Because he's seeing for the first, he knew he was blind and now he's seeing for the first time. Jesus says, I can work with someone like that. From a spiritual perspective, someone who is blind, I can help them to see, but they got to acknowledge that they're blind. The Pharisees wouldn't acknowledge that they're blind. They're even eavesdropping on the conversation. You just can't get rid of these guys. Verse Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? I mean, come on. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. If you would just admit that you need help. If you would just admit that you need help, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, no, 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 I'm fine. I don't need a savior. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need the cross. I don't need a sacrifice. Now that you say we see your guilt remains. The only people who can't be cured are the people who think they don't need a cure. Paul Tripp sums up this reality so clearly and succinctly. Let me close with these words. He says, spiritual blindness isn't like physical blindness. When you're physically blind, you know you're blind. So you compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are also blind to their own blindness. They think they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself than he does. If the Pharisees had just admitted that they were blind, 
rather than trying to judge Jesus if they only invited Jesus to judge them. And then Jesus would have given a verdict and a sentence, and the sentence would have been death. And then Jesus would have gone and paid that sentence in full by dying on the cross for them. Are you blind spiritually to your own need for a Savior? Let's pray that God would open our eyes. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, who's not merely the healer, but also the creator. The judge of the living and the dead. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes, God, to see our sin, to see our need, and that we would see our Savior. And that we would worship him as this man said, I believe and he worshiped. God, be with us now as we take these symbols in our hands. May you be present among us. May we hear, may we see May you draw very close to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.